Okay, ladies and gentlemen, happy Hanukkah, Chag Sameach to you all. So we all know that Hanukkah is our Jewish festival of lights, and it's a very beautiful Yom Tov, and it's a time in which many of us find inspiration and the ability to move forward, even sometimes when the circumstances seem dark or daunting. And we're reminded each night of Hanukkah to continue to add light. And that even small amounts of light can dispel great deals of darkness. All right, there's so much to be said about this Yom Tov called Hanukkah. How did it start? How did it start? I think that's a, a fair question to ask. Nobody seems to really know the answer. For example, a quick Google of how the Maccabean revolt started search takes you to a Jewish rebellion led by the Maccabees against the Seleucid Empire and the Hellenistic influence on Jewish life. We hear that the main phase of the revolt lasted from 167 to 160 before the Common Era and ends with the Seleucids in control of the country, but in conflict with the Maccabees. And in the end, this continues on until 134 before the Common Era, when the Maccabees finally attain independence. Fascinating. So we have a lot of years and a lot of tri trials, travails, tribulations, bloodshed, suffering. How did it start? So, Mr. Google says that King Antiochus V, or known as Antiochus Epiphanes, is a very humble guy. He called himself the brilliant one, or brilliant of the gods. He launches a massive campaign of repression against the Jewish religion in 168 before the Common Era. And this is the most fascinating detail of the Google result. The reason he did so is not entirely clear, but seems to be related to the king mistaking a coup for leadership of the Jewish priesthood as a full-scale rebellion. 
So the mightiest army of the day dispatches hundreds of thousands of troops to crush a perceived rebellion, but he couldn't get his information straight. And the reason isn't clear. <laughs> Almost 22 centuries later, we still don't know how this began. I think that's rather fascinating. Now, the book of Maccabees does have an answer. According to the book of Maccabees, after Antiochus issues his decrees forbidding Jewish religious practice, why he made these decrees, we don't know. Nobody seems to have the answer for But there was this royal Jewish priest from Modi'in, whose name is Matityahu, and he is called the Hashmonai or Hasmonian, and he sparks the revolt against the Seleucid Empire by refusing to worship the Greek gods. So he sparks a revolt against the Greeks, but why did the Greeks, to begin with, attack the Jewish people? He doesn't have an answer. The book of Maccabees says that Matisio killed a Hellenized Jew who stepped forward to take place in sacrificing an idol as the Greek officer who was sent to enforce the sacrifice. And then he and his five sons fled to the nearby mountains next to Modi'in, and the revolt begins. One of the most fascinating things about the Hanukkah story is that we actually have independent corroboration of the story. There is no historical document that attests to the Ten Plagues, for example, or the Yitzhiya Mimitzrayim, the Exodus. There is the scroll of Antipar, which historians dismiss, I guess because it doesn't fit into their narrative, that the Exodus is a figment of somebody's biblical imagination. And, and it does allude to Egypt being destroyed and to them having all kinds of suffering. But there is no specific mention of Hebrews or an uprising of slaves led by a charismatic leader named Moses sent by God. We don't hear anything like this. There is no independent corroboration of the story of Joshua's conquering Yericho, Jericho, or for that matter, the land of Canaan. Many, many secular historians dispute the idea that Joshua ever existed. They don't accept the, the whole narrative of Jewish people coming into the land of Canaan. Many people in the world today deny that Israel is our Jewish homeland altogether. It's extremely popular, in fact. There is no independent corroboration of anybody like Gidon, Samson. We don't know anything. We have no source for Samuel, King Saul, battles against Amalek. David and Goliath, even King Solomon. There were multiple miraculous deliverances experienced by the Jewish people during their first few centuries of tumultuous national existence, where they went from highs to lows. Invariably, they went from a spiritual low into a material low. As in the early centuries of our nationhood, Spiritual deprivation always would lead to material suffering. And then somebody would come, inspire the Jewish people. He would be called a judge or a prophet. He would galvanize the nation spiritually. And as we return to Hashem, things were restored to us. There's no record of this. There's no historical record of the sun standing still. In the, in, the, in the valley of Ayalon, as Joshua does battle. We happen to know which day it is, well, because it's recorded that it was the third day of Thomas. I only found that out on the third day of Thomas when that became a big date for us, Hasidim. So we have no independent corroboration of any of this. 
What's most fascinating is we don't even have independent corroboration of the story of Purim. Believe it or not. Even though it says, they are written on Sifrei, it says in the Megillah that the story of Purim is written in their records. We haven't found it yet. If it says that it's surely so. But those records aren't known to us. One of the reasons that's given for Hashem's name not being mentioned in the Megillah is because if it would be written in the Hebraic, the Tanakh version with Hashem's name, then in the secular version, or perhaps more accurately, pagan or idolaters version, God's name would be supplanted for the name of their deity. We're not allowed to cause people to mention the name of a foreign deity. And that's the simple reason why our sages said, let's not have the name of Hashem altogether. A book of the Tanakh, of our Jewish canon, our Bible, doesn't mention God once. Because there are other sources that corroborate it, and yet we do not have access to any of these sources today. And the only struggle, if you will, Jewish struggle, successful Jewish struggle, like miraculous deliverance kind of struggle, which is well documented, is the story of Hanukkah. Or the revolt of the Hashmonaim, the Hasmoneans, or Maccabees as they were called. So we have independent corroboration of this. The Egyptians weren't going to write about their failures. <laughs> there was his story. They would write their story, what, what read well for them. The Torah is not a history book. The Torah is God's word to us, oftentimes invoking frames of history to convey important messaging, lessons for life. As a history book, it's been criticized as shoddy and out of order. And those criticisms are accurate, but they're based on a misconception, a gross misconception, that the Torah was supposed to be a history book, which is entirely untrue. <laughs> it was written by Hashem, dictated from God to the prophets, so that it would be a roadmap for life. And what's of overriding and singular importance is how those messages are best delivered. And if it means that the Torah is sometimes going to be chronologically out of order, well, so be it, of course. It's not about recording historically detailed chronology. It's about conveying messages. It's pretty obvious that if the focus is conveying the stories or messages that have lessons for life, then if the chronology is not relevant, to the eternal message, then the chronology gets left aside. Ein muktam um said, you cannot get technical with the actual order of the Torah because sometimes a story that unfolded later on is recorded earlier. Because that's what the Torah is about, about getting certain messages across. Of course, the Canaanites were not going to write the story of the Jewish conquest, would you? Did Pravda talk about American successes? Of course not. It was a state-run fake news. Mind you, I'm not even so sure the media is telling the truth today most of the time. The point is this. We have 
copious documentation of the failed Jewish revolt against Rome, we don't have any celebrations associated with it. Only days of mourning and sadness, like Tisha B'Av. But Hanukkah is a Jewish holiday, a ubiquitous Jewish holiday. Just about every Jewish community has been celebrating Hanukkah for nearly 22 centuries. And it's well documented for good reasons. The Greeks' failure, the Seleucid dynasty's collapse, was largely due to the revolt of the Kohanim, or of the Jewish people, during the time of Hanukkah. This was an event of major global proportion. It's really historic. It's a big deal. The Seleucid dynasty or Greece never recovers. In the end, it is Rome that rises. So there's good reason for this to be documented. And yet, the non-Jewish sources don't tell us how it started. Because, think about it, how would they know? How would they know what motivated a group of Kohanim to actually begin a rebellion? Why would they care to document that? They didn't. And here is the unbelievable thing. Many, many of the details of the wars of the Hashmonaim or Hasmonean struggles are not recorded per se in Jewish sources. Certainly not accurate Torah sources. And yet, I am going to tell you about the beginnings of this battle or struggle that leads to the climax of the miracles of Hanukkah and the festival we continue to celebrate until this very day in Torah sources. And yet, almost no one has ever heard of it. I'm not resorting to hyperbole. I'm going to share things with you today that you've probably never heard before. And they're quite shocking. That, of course, will beg the question, why aren't these details better known? And it will lead us into a discovery of what Hanukkah really commemorates. And when you understand what Hanukkah is about, you'll understand why this story hasn't ever received, like, front billing. I hope by now I've piqued your curiosity and you'll stay with me. The story, as most people know it, is the story from the book of Maccabees, which is not a Torah book. Matas Yahu is being forced to sacrifice something. He doesn't want to sacrifice it. He attacks those who are trying, and a rebellion breaks out. But what prompted Antiochus to crush Judea with such force to begin with? There's like a missing link to the story. There is a medrash, and the medrash is called Medrash Hanukkah, or Medrash Maise Hanukkah. I'm going to share the details of Medrash Maise Hanukkah, and what emerges will be quite surprising. 
The Medrash bases itself on a number of Torah verses. For example, a verse that's found in the book of Yirmiyahu, in the 50th chapter. The prophet Jeremiah, looking into the future, says, So says the Lord of hosts, The children of Yehuda, Judea, the children of Israel, are being oppressed. In verse 34, Goyalem Chazak Hashem Their Redeemer is God, mighty Redeemer. He will be prosecuting their battles. Laman so that he will calm or bring solace to the land. And the Medrash begins to talk about this. The Medrash says that this is a prophetic reference to what happened in the days of the Assyrian Greeks. Now, for matters of historical accuracy, it's just important to know that Alexander the Great, who was the son of Philip of Macedonia, a minor Greek monarch, at a very young age, not only assumes the throne in Macedonia, but unites all of the Greek provinces, and then goes on to conquer the world. He builds what is arguably the greatest empire of all time, the Greek Empire. He is not only a fearless warrior, a charismatic and courageous leader, he's also a highly, highly intelligent person, probably a genius. He's the star pupil of Aristotle himself. This philosopher, Greek king, this mighty warrior, this architect of an incredible empire captures Jerusalem. Israel lies just between the lands of Africa, Asia, and Europe, the Middle East. It's a critical route for trading. It was always a very, very busy place for commerce. It's important for Alexander to subdue and conquer this area, which he does. Incredibly, he turns out to be extremely philo-Semitic. He's gracious towards the Jewish people. He does not destroy the base of Migdash. That's a story in and of itself. It's telling and quite compelling to know that many, many, many Jews, until this very day, bear the name Alexander, named by or named for their own grandparents, named for grandparents who were named in Alexander's honor when he wanted to place a bust of himself in the Jewish Besamigdash in the temple. They said, we can't do that, but we can honor you by having all the Kohanim name boys born to them this year, Alexander. And the name has survived. Many names of great Rebbe's from the times of the Mishnah and the Talmud do not exist. I've never yet met a Tarfun, an Abaya, or Rava. These are some of the most famous sages of all time, and yet Alexanders are everywhere. Alexander doesn't hate the Jews. He respects the Jews. One of Aristotle's most famous disciples goes on to say that the Jewish people are a nation of philosophers. To them, it's the highest compliment they could possibly pay. After Alexander's death, his empire fractures. Ptolemy essentially asserts control over the North African in the Asian areas. That's called the Potolemic Empire. 
and the Seleucids seized control of the north and the northwest. And that becomes known as the Assyrian or Syrian Greek Empire. Israel falls under the sway of the Assyrian or the Seleucid Greek empires, and it is Antiochus who sets out to crush the spirit of the Jewish people, to destroy the Jewish religion. And that's where the Medrash picks up. Amru, they said, Let us enact numerous decrees against these people, until they become so demoralized that they will kick in rebelliousness against their God. And then they will embrace our pantheon of idols. They had a pantheon of gods they worshipped. So the first decree against the Jewish people was, you couldn't lock your doors. They stripped the Jewish people of privacy. They said, anybody who will have a lock on his door will face a naked sword. Yidker Bechorev. They'll be killed. And why? Who cares if people lock their doors? One of the most important Jewish values from the very beginning was tzniut, the concept of modesty. You know, that politically incorrect idea of you're not supposed to show everything you have to the whole world and that people should live private lives, that displays of intimacy and affection should not be done in public. It was Bilaam, the evil prophet, who noticed this when he tried to curse the Jewish people in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu. The Greeks said, the Jewish people's modesty is a vanguard. It protects them. If we can strip them of their modesty, of their, their privacy, if we can expose their life, make things garish and open, you know, kind of like society is today, then we will rob the Jewish people of their spirit. One who has no door, has no honor, has no dignity, has no privacy. And then people can enter by day and by night, and this will cause the Jewish people to diminish their intimacy because they can't lock the door. And it would be very demoralizing. It would create seditious criminal activity throughout the country. And indeed, the Medrash says, this was the fulfillment of the verse in Devarim that we would be fearful by day and night. The Jewish people couldn't take it. It was, it was a demoralizing, crushing experience. And Hashem said, this has come your way because you will lax in the area of placing a mezuzah on the door. And so, the Medrash goes on to tell us that this decree lasted for a total of three years, and yet the Jewish people somehow survived and even flourished. When their occupiers saw that this didn't work, when they saw that it had not caused a breakdown of the monogamous moral life that the Jewish people were famous for, it had not brought about, you know, uh, swinging or licentiousness amongst couples which was supposed to happen when they were robbed of their privacy and stripped of modesty, they decided that they would kind of up the ante. And so they said, 
Any Jew who owns an animal has to inscribe on this animal that he or she has no portion in the God of Israel. And what was the point? The point was that by using the animals, which were a very important part of the economy for the Jewish people, as well as a source of milk and meat. By doing this to the animals, the Jewish people would not eat from those animals. They wouldn't eat their milk, and they wouldn't use their meat, and they wouldn't use them to farm. And as such, it would destroy them economically. They would be robbed of prosperity. The Medrash goes on to say the Jewish people cried out before Hashem. They said, this is so difficult for us, but heaven forfend that we would deny our love and our loyalty for Hashem. Chas v'shalem, shenach They sold their animals. And Jewish people no longer used animals for mobility. They walked wherever they went. And this too is a fulfillment of a biblical verse that is found in the book of Ecclesiastics. There's this proverbial conversation between God and the Jewish people, and the Medrash says, you didn't come to Yerushalayim. You didn't bring the offerings as it was ordained, and that's why you're suffering now from your animals. And the Jewish people cry out to Hashem, and somehow they survive. What happens is that their, their homes that don't have doors that close are suddenly visited by all kinds of wild animals, you know, like deers and wild buck or goats. Different birds flew into the houses. And so the Jewish people were able to eat these animals because you had to inscribe on something that belonged to you. You had to register your animal, so to speak, and make it a portion of the idolatrous Weltanschauung that they sought to impose upon the nation of Israel. So here, suddenly Hashem makes this miracle and everything works out beautifully. The enemy saw that Israel somehow continued to prevail. So they said, Any woman, married woman, who will visit the mikveh, she will be ripped to pieces, killed. And anybody who sees a family that keeps the mitzvah of family purity, that is, that husbands and wives are not intimate during the period of, of, of menstruation, and that the woman visits the mikveh afterwards, this is a subject that is totally beyond the purview of the next 30 seconds, but it's a very important mitzvah. It's a foundational mitzvah in our observance of Yiddishkeit. It basically says that a husband and wife are not the only two partners in a marriage. There's a third partner, God. And God tells a husband and wife when they should or shouldn't be together. Who's the prophet? The woman's body is the prophet. So it is through the biology of a woman that the couple knows when they should be apart and when they should be together again. And a mikveh is a key element in this. It should be noted that over the ages, mikvaot have always been a part of Jewish life. Mikvaot have been found in Mitzada, and the last Jewish institution to cease functioning in the Warsaw Ghetto, literally in the midst of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, were, yes, you guessed it, the mikveh. At any rate, the Jewish people didn't know what to do. So they stopped intimacy. And this effectively caused a, a shutdown of, pop, of the growth of the population. The enemy said, well, if they won't procreate with their wives, we will. This was really terrible. The Jewish people saw what was going on here, and they said, we have no choice. We're going to have to be with our wives. We're going to have to get together and, uh, as couples, even without a mikveh. 
And they cried out to Hashem. They said, Hashem, God Almighty, we don't want this. This is not our choice. We're being forced into this. And God says, I know that this is without intention. I will help you, save you. And so the Medrash says that suddenly wells, underground springs began to break open. The ground began to break open and people found these wells and it was, and it was, in, it was in the privacy of homes. And as such, they were able to use the mikveh. And there's a verse to support this too. And, I mean, much of this is, is not well known. The idea of kisru l'chem al keren asher, write it on the, the horn of your, of your ox, is something which is better known. But here we start to get into something which is talked about in, in Torah sources other than this medrash. The enemy sees that the children of Israel are not caving in. They're not getting divorced. They're continuing to live together. And so they said, okay, this is the final decree. This will break the spirit and rob the Jewish people of any dignity and vestige of holiness, and subsequent to this, we will be able to dominate Israel entirely. They said, no marriage can take place in Israel unless the bride registers first. I know you think a big deal, like getting a marriage license is pretty common these days. Well, that's not exactly what they meant. A bride couldn't go home with her groom on the first night. She had to spend time with the local governor, the local Greek, Assyrian Greek governor. And only after she spent a night with the local Assyrian Greek governor could she then return and go on to live her married life. Kivan when the people of Israel heard this, here they were overwhelmed. Their spirit had finally been broken. They did not have the strength. They stopped, they stopped marriages. This effectively shut down the future of the Jewish people. Young Jewish couples were growing older and not getting married. The Greek said, well, if they're not getting married, then uh, we'll do as we please. An epidemic, a rash of rape broke out across the land of Israel. This went on, the Medrash says, for three years and eight months until something happened. And that brings me really to the opening volley of today's class. There was a Misa. There was a story. The story was of the daughter of the high priest. The high priest, his name is Matasio. This is how it is in the Siddur. In the days of Matasio, the son of Yechenen, the Kohen Gadol. The daughter of Matityahu is now supposed to marry, or is getting married to, Nisas Leben Chashmanoi. She's going to be marrying the daughter of Chashmanoi. Sorry, the son of Chashmanoi. The Elazar Hayashmoi, his name was Elazar. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you is that when most people 
will be asked who Chashmanoi is, they'll tell you what he means. Matasyol, Kohen Gadol Chashmanoi. Matasyol is the Chashmanoi. But the Medrash seems to say otherwise. The Medrash seems to identify them as two very different people. One has a daughter and one has a son. So what happened? Kivan she gives mana sauda. The time for the wedding feast arrives. All of the great members of Jewish society arrive to participate to honor Matityahu and the son of Chashmanoi. They were the most prominent members of that generation. When they sat down to the wedding feast, and this is a name that the vast majority of people have not heard of. First of all, the vast majority of people who think they know the story of Hanukkah will not tell you there's anybody named Chashmanoi. Chashmanoi is Matasyo's name, except that it isn't. We hear about Chana and her seven sons. And there is a story in the Talmud about Chana and her seven sons, but it's in a different era. And there is purportedly the graves that have been discovered of Chana and her seven sons, and we don't know which Chana and her seven sons it is. We know of a Yehudit, the daughter of the Kohen Gadol. We don't know of a Chana. The Medrash says the daughter of Matasyo, Kohen Gadol's name is Chana. She got off from her epirion, which is, I guess, like a little uh, bridal chair. She began to clap her hands with great force. Fasten your seatbelt. She ripped her wedding gown off. She stood exposed. Now, I don't know if this means actually in the nude or in undergarments, but it certainly wasn't the standard that the Jewish people were used to. So whether she looked like a bikini-clad bride or a bride, you know, who wasn't wearing anything, I don't know. But this is the story. So she gets everybody's attention. She gets up. She makes a lot of noise. And then she strips. And she stands like that. Before her parents and her in-laws. I'm not making this up. When her brothers saw this, they were terribly embarrassed. They put their faces on the ground. It's literal or perhaps euphemistic. They literally rend their garments as a sign of mourning. What's going on over here? And the Medrash says, They wanted to kill her. This was what the Jewish people had struggled against. The licentiousness of Assyrian Greek life. And here the daughter of the Kohen Gadol is giving a, a strip show to the, to the entire wedding. I mean, this was like unbelievable. Amr lahem, she said to them, Shamainu Listen here, brothers and uncles. 
I am standing before all you righteous people, Aruma, naked, but Belishim Avera didn't do anything. Nobody's actually sinned. And you're coming after me in righteous indignation and anger. And you're standing by when tonight you're going to send me off to be raped by a Greek governor? Really? Like, what's wrong with you people? You should be learning from Simon and Levi, from the brothers of Dina. What did they do when their sister was ravished? What did they do when she was abducted? There were just two. And yet, in righteous anger, they went to save their sister. They killed an entire city to save their sister. I don't want to belabor the whole point of Shechem now, but let's just say this. The people of Shechem stood by when a young girl was brutally raped and abducted and they refused to return her to her parents. Her father said, give me back my daughter, let her come home. They said, no, 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 we're going to negotiate. She's staying here. And yet, uh, you know, these bleeding heart liberals are, 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 are so angry at Shimon and Levi and they have no remorse, no compassion for Dina. The story goes that they made them a wager. So, okay, you want to marry our daughter, that's fine. You got to get circumcised. And they figured this they'll never accept. To their shock and chagrin, they said, no problem. We'll all do it. They're all part of the sin. They're all part of this crime. It's like a public approbation to the point of extreme suffering to support the rape of a young girl. Shimon and Levi figure, okay, they'll be weakened and we'll be able to bring our daughter, our sister home. What happens? They said, no, 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 over our dead bodies. You can't go there. Dina's not available. Shimon Levi says, step aside, guys. We're armed. And they said, over our dead bodies. And Shimon Levi said, if that's the way you want it, Maimonides says that legally they were guilty of a capital punishment. Or Achaim explains, Shimon and Levi were left with no choice. The bottom line is that Shimon and Levi didn't allow their sister to be violated. She says to them, I don't understand you guys. I'm about to be taken off to be raped and not one of you is doing anything about it. But you're ready to attack me because I'm behaving immodestly? What's wrong with you? They sacrificed their lives. They've laid their lives in the line. Hashem helped them. And you, I have five brothers... And here we get the name of the Maccabee brothers. Yehuda, Yochanan, Yonatan, Shimon, Elazar. These are the five sons of Matas And there are young Kohanim here. More than 200. Where's your betochen? Where's your trust in God? Place your trust in God. And he will help you. And there's a verse that's brought to quote this. And then she began to weep. And she raised her voice and she said, Almighty God, if you will not have mercy on us, have mercy upon the desecration of your great name. Avenge our vengeance today. Medrash Hanukkah says, and this is really almost the conclusion of the Medrash Hanukkah, at that moment, her brothers rose up in her defense and they said, we need to figure this out. 
And according to the Medrash, the idea was that they went along with their sister, as if to deliver her to the local governor. But they said, no, 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 no. Our sister is the most beautiful girl in the land. She's not good enough. A local governor is not going to be able to. This is not right, right. This should be the provincial governor, the king's representative himself, the, if you will, the ruler of Judea at the time. And so the provisional ruler of Judea, who was like a king, they, they brought her to the provisional ruler, the governor of the entire Judea, and they went together with her, and they said um, they were escorting her, but they came in armed. They killed the governor, they killed his soldiers, and thus the revolt began. A heavenly voice rings out from the Holy of Holies and says, My sheep, so to speak, my flocks, shall be victorious. So this is a story that actually seems to precipitate this, 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 the sending of thousands of troops, of hundreds of thousands of troops, and then Antiochus is going to crush the Jewish people, or he'd like to crush the Jewish people if it doesn't work. So you're going to say, well, I never heard this story. Nobody ever heard this story. Nobody ever heard of this medrash. It's a medrash, okay, it's a, it's a story. Maybe it's literal, maybe it's not. Nachmanides, in his commentary on Genesis 49, where Jacob is blessing his sons, clearly does not buy into this. In Nachmanides' commentary, he speaks about the blessing to Yehuda. And Yehuda's blessing is that a tribe shall not depart from Judah. And that royalty belongs to the house or the tribe of Yehuda. And Machmanis then tells us, and I'm quoting, This was the punishment of the Hasmoneans, who ruled over the Jewish people during the time of the Second Temple. They were the most pious, holy people. The Ilmalahim, and if not for them, there would be no Judaism left. They saved Judaism. Literally. And yet, they were punished terribly. In Einish Godel. Why? Ki Arba, the four Bnei Chashmanoi Hazokim, Hachasidim Hamelchim, the four sons of Chashmanoi the elder, who sought to become kings, it says who were who ruled, but they didn't actually rule. Zeach or Zeach, I guess they, they, were, they were ruling the, the opposition at the time. In Kol Gvur Asam with all of their valor and might and miracles, they all fell by the sword. And we're told Yehuda, Elazar, Yenison, and Shimon were all killed. They all fell by the sword. So who was left? I guess according to this version that Yehuda, Elazar, Yonatan, and Shimon are all killed or all felled, we'd have to say that Oh, come on. We didn't have those five names before. Hi. Um, bum, 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 bum. 
Yehuda Yochanan Yonatan Shimon and Elazar. And here he says, Shimon, Yehuda, Elazar, Yonatan, and Shimon are killed. So I guess we left with Yochanan, and Yochanan becomes Jonathan Herkinus. He does become actually the Maccabee king. And by the way, he doesn't stay so righteous. But this is another story. So the righteous ones all fall. Now, this is the five sons, they're the sons of Matasio. The Medrash identifies them the son of Matasio. Nachmanides seems to be following the narrative that's found in the book of Maccabees. Matasio and his five sons, they rebelled and they, they, they controlled, they controlled the, the, the land of Israel at the time. And yet they were punished. And here we have now a quote where Nachmanides Ramban quotes the, the, the statement that's made later in the story of the Gemara and Bava Basra on page 50 that speaks about the massacre of the Chashmanoim by Herod, by Hurdis. And the Gemara says, Kol Anybody who says, I am a descendant of the Hasmoneans, you should know that he is actually a slave of the household because not a single member of the family survived. The entire seed of the Hasmoneans was wiped out. Even though there was some of them who were not so good. So there were some of the bad guys. So that's true. But he says, The seed of Matasyo, Chashmanoi, the righteous, Chashmanoi, the righteous, did not do anything wrong. So it cannot be for this reason that the entire family should be wiped out. Yes, it's true. There were some Sadducee priests who denied the Torah later. But this is not fair to implicate the entire family of Matasyahu Chashmanoi. What Nachmanani says here fits the regular bill of the story. It's interesting to note that Maimonides, in his codes, goes into a little bit of history, and this is rather unusual, but when he opens the laws of Hanukkah, and we'll talk about this in a future episode, he says, Babayas Cheni, in the time and the era of the Second Temple, Kishamolchu Yavan, when the Assyrian Greeks ruled over Israel, Gazruk Zedes Yisrael, they issued decrees against the people of Israel, Ubitlu Dasam, they attempted to nullify and do away with their faith, it didn't allow them to observe the Torah and mitzvahs. We don't get the details here. Ramani just gives us a synopsis. They proverbially extended their hands against their property, against their, 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 their possessions, and their daughters. And then it says, which here we don't hear about that in the Medrash Hanukkah. They entered into the holy temple. They wrought havoc within, and they made the sacraments of the Beis Hamikdash all impure. It was a terrible, terrible time. The Jewish people suffered tremendously. They were very much oppressed. Until the, the Lord God, their, their, their father, God of their fathers, He saved them from their hands. And then we hear The children of Hashmanoi, the great Kohanim, were able to overcome them. Vaharogum, they slew them. Vahishiam, Yisrael miyadim, they saved the Jewish people from their hands and they appointed a king from the Kohanim. Sovereignty returns to Israel. Maimonides calls it for Yeser Messiah Shana, but the truth is that the last hundred years 
Israel is already under control of the Romans, at least the last 70 years under control of the Romans, and no longer really under control of the Jewish people. They had their vassal kings, but only kings in name. At any rate, Rambam doesn't mention a thing about what starts the war. And it's not clear from Rambam if he says, B'nei Chashmanoi, Hakonim Agdolim. He doesn't even mention Matasyo. He talks only about the sons of Chashmanoi. So you could say, well, if it's Chashmanoi, it's Matasyo, who is Chashmanoi. The problem is the Medrash tells us to two different people. There's, there's Matasyo, the Kohen Gadol, and there's Chashmanoi. And then what we call in, 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 the, in the Jewish lingua franca, we call them michutonim. Their, their, their children marry. And according to another version, they are related. They're distant relatives, they're cousins. They're all from the same family, a family called Chashmanoi. But his name actually was Chashmanoi. And he had a son named Elazar. He marries a, a woman named Chana who's the daughter of Matasyo Kohen Gadol, who's, according to the story, actually the heroine of Hanukkah. Without her, they never would have had the gumption and courage to revolt. She did something extraordinary to shock them into action. Is this medrash acclaimed? Or is it like a medrash that we don't really understand? I'm about to demonstrate to you that this medrash is what is embraced by the Talmudic narrative, by the narrative of the Rishonim, the vast majority of the Rishonim. Although, as I pointed out to you, Nachmanides seems to say other words, otherwise. Okay, so let's begin our little journey like this. The first place I'm going to take you is to the Gemara in Mesechet Megillah. The Gemara in Mesechet Megillah tells us on a verse in the Torah, and I will share first the verse of the Torah, and then we will go into the details of how this verse is elaborated on. In the end of the book of Leviticus, in the end of Chumash Vayikra, we read Parshas Bechukaisai, and Parshas Bechukaisai speaks about the Tochacha, the rebuke. A string of curses against the Jewish people if they will not listen to the way of Hashem. And towards the end, Hashem says that in the, in, ultimately I will remember you. And ultimately I will bring you home. And ultimately I will save you. And the matter says like this. Va'af gamzot. All of what we've just said. Notwithstanding everything. Af gamzot, despite it all. When they will be in the land of their enemies, Loma asked him, I will not be disgusted by them or despise them. I will not loathe them to annihilate them. To break or violate my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. Chapter 26, verse 44. So the Gemara in Mesechet Megillah tells us, the Gemara in, on page 11 in Mesechet Megillah records the sermons of the sages on the Megillah. And it records the preambles, how they would introduce the story of the Megillah. So the Gemara tells us the following, Vishmuel Amar, and the great sage Shmuel, when he would expound on the Megillah, when he would give his Purim sermons, 
So he would first begin with this verse. And he would expound this verse. And he would say like this. I did not, so to speak, despise them. Maus means to be revolted by something, to be sickened by it, to be disgusted by it, to, be, to, be, to hate it. I didn't despise them. When is this? When did Hashem not, so to speak, not be dis- in, in a state of disgust, despising the Jewish people? Says Shmuel, This refers to the days of the foreign occupation of the Assyrian Greeks of the land of Israel. And I didn't loathe them. When is that? That's in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, who destroys the first Beit HaMikdash. So this verse is not an order of history, the way the Gemara is expounding it. Also out of order, because first comes Nebuchadnezzar, then comes Haman, then comes Hanukkah. But here in Shmuel's drash, in his homily, in his expounding of this verse, we refer first to the story of Hanukkah, then go back to Nebuchadnezzar, and then return to the story of Purim. Lechalotam, to destroy them. This is, was Haman's design, to destroy all the Jewish people. That's Bimei Haman. Lahafer brisi itam, to violate or break my covenant. This is Bimei Parsim. This is the days of the of the, the Persians. According to the Maharsha, interest, interest, in, 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 interestingly enough, uh, he says it's actually uh, it was changed by the censor. It actually is supposed to be made Romoim during the days of the Romans. And the Romans didn't like this. They don't want them to be included in this way. Because I am the Lord God. This refers to the end of time. That's in the days of Gog, in the days of Magog. We don't know who these people are, Gog and Magog, but they will be the ones who oppress us at the end of time. Just as Mashiach arrives, then Hashem himself will save us. You know, parenthetically, it's very interesting to note that in the blessings of Jacob, he says, Hashem, I hope for your salvation, O God. So Rashi tells us, as the Unklus renders it, this is a prayer for Samson to save the Jewish people when his, when his hair was cut and he drank wine and he lost his strength and he said, But the Targum Yerushalmi and the Targum Yonatan ben Ozil say, For your salvation, not the salvation of Samson, not the salvation of Gidon, not the salvation that comes to a person. It refers to God himself. Mashiach won't save us. God will save us. Mashiach will be Hashem's special anointed messenger to bring us home to Eretz Yisrael, but Mashiach will not save us. Hashem will save us. It's exactly what the Gemara says here. So the Gemara goes into this now. The Gemara says, okay, um, in our Mishnah, we have this worded a little bit differently. Lo ma'astim. That's in the days of the Kazdiim, the Chaldeans, which refers to the Babylonians. And that's Shehem Lem Daniel, the Hanani Mishal Vazarya, the prophet Daniel, the young heroes who refused to bow in submission to the king, Hanani Mishal Vazarya. Vlaigaaltim, so now we're in order, according to the Mishnah, is Bimeyivanim. That's in the days of the Assyrian Greeks. Who are the people here who saved us? From the Babylonians, our faith was restored, our trust in Hashem was restored by Daniel, by Hanani Rishol Vazarya, and being involved in the government, as the Mepharshim explained, they were able to stop the purges against the Jewish people. 
and who was able to help us in the days of the Greek Empire, which replaces the Persian Empire, which replaced the Babylonian Empire? The answer is Shimon HaTzadik, Simon the Just. He's the one who faces off with Alexander the Great when Alexander comes with baleful intent to Jerusalem, and it is Shimon HaTzadik who was able to save the Jewish people then without a single arrow being fired. But then, when Alexander dies in his 30s, and his empire fractures, and his governments or his generals are infighting, and, and we have a northern kingdom and a, and, a, and a southern kingdom, or Africa, Asia Minor, and then we have of, um, uh, Eurasia on the other side, what happens then is that the Jewish people are terribly persecuted by Yevanim. Who saves us then? So the Gemara says, Who is it who saves us? Shimon HaTzadik, that's one person. And then decades later, the story of Hanukkah, the Chashmanoi Ubanov, Chashmanoi and his sons, Umatasyo Kengado, and Matasyo the high priest. So the Gemara seems to be saying exactly the same thing as the Medrash. Chashmanoi and Matasyo. And what I found tremendously interesting was that this version of the Gemara shows up in the Gemara Ein Yaakov. Ein Yaakov is the Gemara's stories, recorded only the stories recorded, which sometimes have a slightly different version. And then the Ein Yaakov, in Mesechet Megillah, it's on entry number 13. Over there we have very similar Gemara, slight changes, a slight difference. The difference here is, Loi ma'astim, I did not loathe them, despise them, I didn't loathe them, that's referring to the Roman occupation. Going back to Haman. So we have a difference here. Things are scrambled. We have a mention, an open mention of the Romans. That's speaking about the Aramim. They have the time of the Armenians. I God, no person that will save you. That's for Gog and Magog. That's how Mashiach comes. Then the Gemara in Yankov says, We learned in the Mishnah. This refers to the days of the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. Now we're getting it in order. Refers not to the Chaldeans, but to the Persian Empire. And here the Gemara says, This is mentioned, by the way, in the Gemara Mesechet Megillah afterwards. The Ein Yaakov rever- inverts it and puts Mordechai and Esther before. To entirely destroy them. According to the Ein Yaakov, does not refer to the time of Purim. Although Haman's intention was the mass murder the genocide against the Jewish people, which would seem on the surface, the word kilayon is more applicable, fits better with that. Nonetheless, the Yaakov has a different version of it. And the Yaakov has it in order. Is in historical order, he puts it. First the, Gre- the, the Chaldeans, the, the, Bab- the Babylonians. Then the Persian Empire. So it's a different version. And yet, in this version also. And it's changed. So it's two versions of the same Gemara. In one version, Chashmanoi shows up first, and Matasyo Koen Gadol comes later. In the other version, Matasyo Koen Gadol 
The son of Yechni Kohen Gadol is mentioned first, and Hashmonai is mentioned second, but in both versions, he's somebody else. It's very compelling. You can't dismiss that. You see, if there would be two versions of the Gemara, you say, well, one version, there is two people, one version isn't. These are two accurate versions, two versions which are considered to have the full veracity, integrity of Jewish scholarship. And in each of these versions, we have Matas Yoke and Godel and Hashmanai as two different people. That's big. It jibes with the Medrash Hanukkah. It's not like what my, my Nachmanides tell you. Nachmanides is telling you something which fits with the story of the book of Maccabees. Clearly, the Gemara and the Medrash say otherwise. Obviously, Nachmanides had a different tradition. But here it gets more interesting. Rashi, the great Rashi, in his commentary at the end of the Torah, the blessings of Moshe Rabbeinu, where Moshe Rabbeinu is now looking to the Levites, and he blesses them. And he says he blesses them with military might. He says, He speaks about being the, the, the force, the blow to the, to, 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 to the, to the, to the knees, or to the, to, and, and he said this would, this would bring them to the knees, the blow of the loins. So first he says this refers to those who try to stand in the way of usurping the kahuna. But Rashi himself is not satisfied with that. And he says, and I'm quoting, another way to understand this verse, who is the smiting? Since when did the Levites go to war? He saw, Moshe Rabbeinu foresaw that Matasyohu and his, uh, that's sorry, Hashmanoi and his sons. He does not mention, Hash, he did not mention Matasyohu. So he prayed on their behalf. Why? So you're going to say, okay, that's fine. That, that fits perfectly. This could simply be referring to, this could simply be referring to Matasyohu, calling him Hashmanoi. Yeah, it doesn't work. Because it says, he prayed for them. Because they were very few. The twelve sons of Hashmanoi. In no record does Matasyohu ben Yechenikan Gadol have twelve sons. He has five sons. And he says, the twelve sons of Hashmanoi, the Elazar. Who is Elazar? Elazar was the name, the son who was named. He is the one who marries Chana, the daughter of the Kohen Gadol. So the 12 unnamed sons, and Elazar, which is 13 children actually, stood Keneged Kamar Vavis against thousands. And that's the blessing. So Rashi seems to be following the tradition that we find in the Medrash. The Sefer Mitzvah's Gadol, the great Tosafist, Rabbeinu, Moshe, Ben Yaakov of Kusi, in the end of his, the way he lists five rabbinic mitzvahs, he says, he quotes the Gemara in Mesechet Megillah, and he says, the Pasuk in Leviticus, verse in Leviticus, chapter 26, verse 34, and he says, this refers to be the days of the Chaldeans. 
And then he says, Lega'altim, that's the first to the Assyrian Greeks. And he says, Shimon HaTzadik, one. Matityahu Kohen Gadol, two. Chashmanoyu Bonov, a third. A major Tosafist, Rashi. Two versions in the Gemara and the Medrash that are telling you about somebody else. Why does anybody know the story? This is an unbelievable story. A Jewish woman was brave enough to expose herself, quite literally, and galvanize her family to act. Another great Rishon, Rabbi Elazar Rokeach, the famed Rishon of the 12th century in Germany, who writes a, no, a number of major works and revolutionizes Jewish thought about many things, including mysticism and ethical conduct. The Balad also wrote a lesser-known commentary on the Siddur. And in his commentary on the Siddur, Andeva Al-Hanisim, he says, in the Al-Hanisim we say, you and your great mercy, you stood there for them in their time of need. And he quotes a verse from Tehillim of Psalms. And in this verse we hear that Hashem will break Shibarta Kashtaisam. You broke their bows. As it says, you broke their bows. As it says, Kharbam Tovi Balibam, their own sword is turned around to pierce their heart. The Kashtaisam Tishavarna. Dovadamelech says, their bows are crushed or broken. The Rekeach quotes another Medrash. This is not the Medrash Hanukkah. Omer Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochoi, that's the author of the Zohar. Omer Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochoi, we don't have this Medrash. But the Medrash is quoted by the Rekeach says, Eilu Yivanim Sha'asu Muhammad Im Chashmanoi. These are the Assyrian Greeks who made battle, who did war with Chashmanoi. And Rekeach says, Amru, they said, Bat ben had a daughter. And this daughter was She'ein Kiyofyo Ba'ilam. She was the most beautiful woman in the world. She was Mikudeshet Libno Shel Chashmanoi. She was engaged to the son of Chashmanoi. In this Medrash, Bo'echad Evonim, one of the Assyrian Greek occupiers came. He grabbed her by her hair. He unfurled a Sefer Torah and he tried to rape her on top of a Sefer Torah. That's what the Medrash says. And people didn't know what to do. They were hoping that it says, Mitzapim Lahari Mizrach. They're waiting for the, the east, the mountains on the east, that some Persians would come and save them because the Persians didn't like, didn't like the Assyrian Greeks because they dispossessed them of their empire. So they're hoping that the Persians will come and help them. Omar Loi, according to this version, Chashmanoi says to Matasyoka and Godol, What is wrong with us? What are we allowing to happen over here? Two people. In this version, it is not her nudity or her bravery or brazenness that galvanizes them to act, but rather it's the tragedy of the situation. 
Chashmanoi says, What are we doing? We're waiting to be saved? We're waiting for some Persians to come and save us? Does the prophet Yeshayo not say, Does the prophet not say, Cursed is, pardon me, Jeremiah. Does he not say, Cursed is the person who trusts in a, in a human? And does Jeremiah not say after, Baruch HaGever, Sheyiftuch Hashem, blessed is the person who trusts in Hashem? What is wrong with us? What, what, what are you, we're standing here. We're waiting for somebody else to help us. Where's our trust in Hashem? Omer says back to me, Well spoken. Well spoken, Chashmanai. Ani, Ubanai, me and my sons, Va'ata, V'zayim Banecha, and you and your seven sons. And even Gimel Bunny says, "My and my three sons, you and your seven sons, Harei Yud Beis connected Yud Beis Shvat, and that makes twelve of us. So it's a slightly different version. Twelve of us. There's me and you is two. You got three sons, and I have seven sons. We got a total of twelve. Muftach Ani Ba'Kadosh Baruch I am going to place my full trust in Hashem. God is going to do a miracle for us. Elazar, who was the Chatan, the purported husband to be." of this beautiful girl whose name is not mentioned here. We don't know what her name is. He grabs a sword and he beheads this would-be rapist. And he went after them. He went after these mighty warriors and he slew them. In tremendous numbers. And Medr says, this is alluded to also in the special liturgical poem which was recited on the first Shabbat of Hanukkah in many communities, it says, It was with 12, with 12 young warriors. Adnei, Bachurai, these young, these young, uh, my chosen ones. You know how they got a miracle? Because they trusted in Hashem power of trust. And that's why Amda lahem sarasim. So so Rokeh is saying, what is the words? You stood for them sarasim. He says this was brought about. It wasn't just God suddenly became merciful. The trust that they placed in Hashem brought about Hashem's help. So what's going on here? Why does nobody know about this? Here's something interesting. The Gemara Masechet Shabbos that speaks about the story of Hanukkah doesn't even introduce us to the Maccabees. It doesn't introduce us to the story at all. The Gemara simply says, the Gemara asks a question where it says, my Hanukkah, so what's Hanukkah? What is it all about? And the Gemara's answer is, oh, Hanukkah, when the Bnei Chashmanoi, when the Asmonians were victorious and they recaptured the base of Migdash, that's when amazing things happen. My Hanukkah, what's Hanukkah? The Tanah Rabban and the Rabbis learned. Bechafah Kislev, Yemid Hanukkah. On the 25th of Kislev, we have days of Hanukkah. Eight days, eight of which we don't have any kind of mourning, any kind of eulogizing, fasting. Why? Shenichnesu. At the time of the Yavadim came into the Hechel, they defiled all the oil. And then, Govra Malchus Beis Chashmanoi, the royal house of Hashmanai was not a royal house yet, but the royal house overwhelmed them. Vinitzchum. Then they looked for some oil. They couldn't find any oil. And then when they couldn't find any oil, and they found one cruise of oil, and they only had oil for one day, and a miracle happened. Then a birth eight days. That's, that's Hanukkah. That's Hanukkah. That's Hanukkah. 
What about all the stuff we just talked about? Rashi himself says, this is by the way, on Daf Chaf Aleph Amid Base, page 21, side B. It's in the middle of the second chapter of Mesechat Shabbat that talks about lighting Shabbat candles. On Daf Chav Gimel, the Gemara speaks about the, the idea that a woman is equally obligated in the observance of Hanukkah. And the Gemara says, but it's a time-bound mitzvah, and time-bound mitzvahs typically women are exempt from. And the Gemara says, no, it's different. They were also part of this miracle. Why? said, if you want to get married, any virgin who wants to get married has to be dethroned, deflowered first by the royal, uh, whatever, uh, little governor of whatever it is, the little commandant of the Assyrian Greek army of the local, of the local area, and then uh, after being deflowered, she can come to her husband. And then Rashi adds, And through a woman, there was a miracle that happened. Which miracle is Rashi referring to? So this idea, this of course it refers to the story of Yehudis. At the end of the miracle of Hanukkah, who beheads Eliphornis, a terrible man, a great hater of the Jewish people, a persecutor of the Jewish people. And so, this idea is that uh, she is the daughter of Yechonen Ken Gadol that everybody knows about. Her name is Yehudis, not Chana. Maybe it's a different daughter. I don't know. Maybe she had two names. Maybe she's named differently. I don't know. Maybe it's the same girl. Maybe the same woman started the war. Maybe the same woman brought the miracle at the end of the war. But she fed him lots of salty uh, dairy d- delights and she put him to sleep and he thought he was getting something else. And, and then, when the enemy saw the head, his head then they became frightened and they ran away. And this story is recorded in a number of places. The Ran, the commentary of the Ran on the Rif, brings this nest in the name of the Medrash. And it says that that's the reason why we have a custom of eating dairy delights on Hanukkah. In another Rishon called, known as Piske Riaz, we also have a similar, a, diff, a little bit different version of the same story. So there is an allusion to a daughter of, of, of the Kohen Gadol. But this daughter of the Kohen Gadol does a very different thing. First of all, she's daughter of Yochanan Kohen Gadol. If anything, she's Matas Yo's sister, not daughter. And here the Medrash names her as Chana. So she's known. This Yehudis is a heroine of Hanukkah. You have Yehuda Maccabee, and you have Yehudis, the daughter of Yochanan Kohen Gadol. We don't hear anything about Chana, the daughter of Matas Yo. I know what you're thinking. When you read the Allah, the Allah Nisim, and the Allah Nisim prayer, it says, Bimei Matas Yo, ben Yochanan Kohen Gadol Chashmanoi. In most of the Sidurim that I looked, and I looked in many, after the words Matasyo ben Yochanan Kaingodo, there is either a comma or a period. So the right way to read, although not everybody agrees with this, the Tashbits reads it the way the Ramban would read it, maybe. But many Rishonim say that the way you read it, and it's in the Siddur, most Sidurim, that's the way it's punctuated. Period. As the Medrash says, they were the two great leaders of the Jewish people. So now you just met Chashmanoi. You probably never heard of him. We don't know any more than just Chashmanoi. There is a Metzudah's David on the word Chashmanim until it says Chashmanoi means a person of great prominence or importance. It could have been the family name and it could have been his personal name also. Or that's the way he's known to us as Chashmanoi. So there's a man named Chashmanoi. He has brave sons. Matis Yohu, the son of Yechon and Kain Gadol who may have been a Kohen Gadol himself, this itself is a dispute in the Tashbits, has five sons. 
who actually lead the revolt, four of whom are killed during the fighting. Only Yochanan survives. And the entire story begins with the Jewish woman disrobing and shaming her brothers to act. So why does nobody know the story? Well, I mean, here's just my, my guess. The story is told to children. How are you going to tell the story to children? Yeah, so there was a Jewish girl. She was very pious. And she did a striptease. So she got, she got naked. She undressed. And she said, ha ha, everybody. You're not doing anything to me. To me, you want to fight, but you're not going to. I'm getting raped tonight, and you guys are okay with that. Like, really? How exactly are you supposed to tell it to the children? It, it doesn't like, work. Yes, it is a medrash. It's true. But there's a lot of details in the medrash we don't know. And clearly, it was not of tremendous importance to talk about this. What was important to know was that the people did finally find their resolve and they found their strength. The Gemara doesn't even discuss it at all. The Alanisim prayer discusses it. It alludes to the whole story by speaking the days of Matasyo and Hashmanoi. Rashi clearly alludes to it. The Samag says it openly. The Gemara and the Yaakov both say it. They clearly say it. That Jewish women suffer terribly is much more of a reason for them to celebrate than there was one Jewish woman who goaded her brothers into action. I think that's why the story isn't told. It's a little unorthodox. It's a hard story to tell. But it's the truth. It's a medrash. The Gemara doesn't even talk about the story at all. The Gemara glosses over the story. Do you know why? Because that's not what Hanukkah is about. So many people make the silly mistake of thinking the message of Hanukkah is Jewish courage, self-determination. Miraculous victories. You gotta be kidding. The day that Joshua conquers Jericho is a far greater open miracle. The day that the sun doesn't set until they can finish processing the barrack is a far greater open miracle. We don't know the days. We don't have a, a, a celebration for it. That victory lasted for hundreds of years, for centuries on end. Uh, the first Jewish commonwealth went on for almost a thousand years, almost a millennia. Hardly any, or actually none of the ancient empires lasted that long. Incredible. Not a mention. The self-determination engendered by the Hasmonean result lasts about a century. That's all. In the second century after their, 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 their victory, we become a vassal state of Rome. And then Jews didn't have any self-determination in Israel for a very long time. But that's not the story of Hanukkah. I came across a talk that the Rebbe delivered to school children, and I want to share it with you. It's Hanukkah 1978. They were speaking to school children. And he says that the miracle of Hanukkah is to be found in the business of pure olive oil or non-pure olive oil. That's the miracle of Hanukkah. A 
everything from your latkes fried in oil to your sufganiyot, your donuts, or punchkes fried in oil, the lighting of a menorah, ideally with olive oil. All of it goes back to the miracle of Hanukkah, which is the miracle of the menorah, the miracle of the pure oil. Even the Al-Hanisim, which mentions the military victory, zeroes in on the menorah. The symbol of Hanukkah isn't bows and arrows. It's the menorah, the spiritual light of Judaism. The Assyrian Greeks, when they sacked the temple, timu kol there was lots of oil. They made sure to defile the oil. Defiling oil doesn't mean they mixed toxins or sediments into it. It's a spiritual thing. It's a ritual thing. The difference between pure olive oil and impure olive oil is not noticeable to the naked eye. God makes a miracle. The Assyrians were like obsessive about making sure that all the olive oil is impure. And we'll talk about this in later episodes. What, like, what was that about? And they find one seal, one cruise, one jug, which is Munach Bechesamish al Gadol, which is still there and it has the seal of the Kohen Gadol. And it's pure olive oil. But they only have enough to light the menorah for one day. So God makes a miracle. And the oil burns. They light the menorah, they kindle the menorah, and it burns for eight days. Until the Jewish people at the time were able to procure a fresh supply of pure olive oil. So that the menorah and the Beis HaMikdash could illuminate, fueled by pure olive oil. And Rebbe says to the children, it is abundantly clear that the miracle was found in this fact that they discovered a small amount of pure olive oil. There was lots of oil in the base of Mignesh. The base of Mignesh was very well stocked with oil. Oil was an enormous, enormously important commodity at the times. The base of Mignesh oil was used for many, many things. There were storehouses filled with oil. One tiny jug of kosher, so to speak, undefiled oil. The kind of oil that Torah says is pure because the oil that's not pure Jew is not supposed to use even for the most sacred things. We gotta light the menorah. Forget about it. It's pure, not pure. At least the menorah will burn. Who will know the difference? It's not apparent to the naked eye. It's a symbol of freedom, they would say. It's a symbol of defiance. Let us kindle a menorah. How would they know if it's pure or not pure? Who knew the difference? Why do we even need such a miracle, you could ask? The Rebbe says the message of Hanukkah is this. I'm just talking to children. So it, this is so beautiful, I think, because the Rebbe simplifies very profound and deep concepts in a way that even a child should be able to understand. He's distilling the essence of Hanukkah into what one might call the simplest or most lucid of words. Hanukkah shows us that when Yidin make a, a, a firm resolve, they're not going to use the defiled olive oil. And they're ready to do battle for it. 
we had a form of self-governance and determination in Israel. If only we would have gotten rid of our religion, if we would have stopped with our spiritual pursuit, Antiochus would have gone home. He didn't send his troops to assert control. They had control before. He sent his troops to crush the spirit, to destroy the religion, the spirituality and holiness of Am Yisrael. That's what this was about. People say it was a war over culture. It was not a war over culture. You don't go to war for culture. So I won't eat kishka. So what? So we won't have gefilte fish. That's culture. It's not culture. Learning Hashem's Torah and doing Hashem's mitzvahs is not culture. It is our spiritual raison d'etre. It is ultimately the embodiment of who we are as Jewish people. Hashem's special children. Hashem's servants living in the way Hashem tells us to, on God's terms, not ours. The Rebbe said, When Yidin finally came to the firmest resolve, that's how a miracle happened. They actually made a miracle happen. When they said, we will not compromise, we will not light the menorah with anything but pure olive oil. After all, the whole battle was about the purity of Yiddishkeit. And now when we come to the base of Midas, we're going to light the menorah with impure olive oil? What did we fight for? Then they won. We won the battles. They won the war. They said, this is not something we're going to back down on. And it has to be sealed by the Kohen Godel, the Helix the Yid from them there, the holiest Jew of the day, so to speak. And that's what they used to kindle the menorah. When they came with a reckoning, so to speak. As the Shemen v'nid z'ayngenuk, they measure the oil. I mean, it's not rocket science. We know how long it takes for oil to burn. It's not going to last. And they made a calculation. It's going to take another eight days till we have pure olive oil. But nonetheless, we're doing the right thing. Without any compromises, we do our part. The rest is in Hashem's hands. Chanukah is Hashem's message to us, to Am Yisrael. Hashem sowed us. As we bald zei bashlisen, when Yidin resolve, and they behave in a manner of utter devotion, absolute self-sacrifice. That the Beis Hamikdash will illuminate, but it will be only filled with the light that is pure. Then they are successful. And from a pach echod, from one cruise or one jug, in other words, we are not celebrating self-determination, Jewish heroism. There were many acts of self-determination, many acts of heroism. Some failed, some were, su- some were successful. That's not the point. The point was what we chose to fight for and the compromises we refused to make. And actually doesn't matter how the war started. It doesn't even matter how the war progressed. Because if we would have fought the battles and miraculously won and then lit the menorah with non-pure olive oil, we would have lost the war. 
the spiritual war. Hashem's message to us on Hanukkah is not one of bows and arrows. It's not one of swords or spears. It's not one of Uzis or grenades, although we should certainly do everything we can to defend ourselves. It's a message of you have to resolve to fight for what is right. To serve Hashem without compromise. And when you make that resolve and you devote and commit yourself to the point of utter self-sacrifice, Hashem did miracles for us in those days and He will continue to do miracles for us in our time until Hashem Himself delivers us in the days of Gogo Magog. May it be, Emirates Hashem, during these illuminated, uplifting, beautiful days of Hanukkah. May we meet together in the third base of Migdash, and may we merit Emirates Hashem to see it kindled and to be able to bask in its holy glow. Bimheira will be Amen speedily, and in our days, Amen. Thank you so much for joining. And if you found this inspirational, please like, share, and if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Kaplan. God bless you all, and a happy Hanukkah.